Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. We're going to be reading from James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I'll invite Billy up. We'll pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for another beautiful Sunday with this church family. I pray that you give Billy all of the wisdom as he's speaking to push through and to send us the message that we need to hear today. Dear Lord, I hope that you can calm our minds, help us put down our to-do lists, soften our hearts so that we know what is being said directly to us and for us this morning, and open our ears just to receive all of your wisdom and word and love. Dear Lord, I thank you for all of your blessings to your glory. Amen. Well, you may be seated. So in just a couple of months, I'm going to be turning uh, 35. Yeah, get excited, right? So uh, I feel too young to need special shoes uh, and slippers, but alas, my feet hurt, so I'll do whatever it takes, right? And uh, I remember I, I got these one, if you can't see them, I got these like hokas, which it's like sounds cool, like I'm a runner, but it's not what you think it is. Um, it's more just that I'm, you know, apparently turning geriatric at 35. So my, my feet hurt. And so I got these shoes and I got these recovery slippers and I was walking around the house because that's not really a thing that I do is wear slippers around the house. And Hannah starts laughing at me because she's a very supportive and loving wife. And she jokes that I look like an early 2000s high schooler. And I was like, okay, thanks, babe. Really appreciate the support as I'm in pain here. All I needed was some gym shorts and a Livestrong wristband. You guys remember those, right? Now, we don't really see those around anymore, and I think it's because of Lance Armstrong's fall from grace. If you don't know who Lance Armstrong was, I'm sure most of you do. He was a world-class cyclist who won the Tour de France seven times. He was a cancer survivor, and he would talk about his workout regimen and how he was very driven, and he would never touch performance-enhancing drugs. And yet, despite all these achievements, despite all the things that he would say, his actual actions contradicted the values 
he professed publicly. Even though he repeated, repeatedly denied, I'm, I'm not using any banned substances. Uh, he even said this under oath, right? He vehemently defended his innocence. Eventually, he came out and said, yeah, I was. I was doping the whole time. Even though he was known for his, his, his cancer advocacy, for his generosity, when the truth emerged, it became evident that, man, he wasn't who we thought he was. He had been in a systematic doping program, deceiving not only his competitors, but also his fans and supporters. And so his actions, they, they reveal this stark contrast between the image he projects and the reality of his behavior. There's a difference between what is claimed and what is done. His actions didn't match his words. And we see this all the time in our world. A politician will boast about the high standards of local state colleges, but enroll their own children in an expensive private university. Or you'll hear a McDonald's executive claiming that his company offers the best food, but is found taking his family out to Burger King. Right? A husband will insist that he cherishes his wife and yet maintains a secret long-standing affair with another woman. It's their behavior that shows what they really think. More than that, it shows who they really are, more than what they say. Our claims, what we say, it's not always an accurate reflection of what we really think, of what we really believe, but our deeds are. We do not always live what we say we believe, but we always believe what we live out. And this is what James is calling us to see today. Here's our big idea this morning. The steadfast life the steadfast life is a life of lived out faith. The steadfast life is a life of lived out faith. And we're going to hear today a pretty challenging word from James. It's an introspective look at how faith stirs us to live. And it starts with the reality that our faith acts. So first, faith acts. Let's look back at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one, of, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now James is starting by asking a pretty poignant question. What good is it if someone says they are a Christian, but they don't live like it? He asks the question by giving us an example by pointing, how do we care for the poor? But if your first instinct when you see someone, is it to show compassion or is it to look down and keep going? If our faith doesn't produce in us more than words, then our faith, friends, is not genuine. If we have the means to help meet the practical and choose not to, no amount of nice-sounding words is going to make up for it. Deedless Christianity is dead Christianity. It is counterfeit. If you have a faith that doesn't act, then you need to ask this question, do I have Real faith. Faith that has no impact on behavior is not authentic Christian faith. If we say we follow Jesus but don't live accordingly, 
Is our faith genuine? Because real faith acts. Real love does. And in particular, real faith serves and cares for others, especially fellow believers. And James makes three things about faith abundantly clear. First, faith is not just intellectual assent. It's not just intellectual assent. In verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Every Jewish man or woman believed the Shema. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, for us, monotheism, not a big deal. We believe that there's one God. For the nation of Israel, huge deal that they believed in one God. Here's the thing that James is telling them. That's great. The demons believe the Shema. Wow. Actually, demons believe a lot of things that we believe. They believe in the existence of God. They believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in the presence of heaven and hell. They know that Christ is the eternal judge. And they know that Christ alone is able to save. And if we're ever tempted to congratulate ourselves about our orthodoxy, about having our theology right, we need to remember who we share it with. The demons, friends, have sound doctrine. Probably more sound than most of us. And this should not surprise us because they know who God is. They know he is one. There are no atheists in the demonic realm. Affirming certain right things about God is clearly not enough. Hell, friends, is full of good theology. Are you pleased with your right understanding of who God is? Great. Congratulations. You are at precisely the same level as the demons. My fear is this. There are countless men and women who have bought into this soul-condemning idea that mere intellectual assent, right, having good theology, having sound doctrine, knowing the right things is enough to save them. And the reality is that these people are no better off than the demons themselves. It's a stinging word that James gives us, isn't it? It's the first thing. The second thing we see about faith is that it's not simply an emotional response. According to James 2.19, the faith of demons, it's not just intellectual, it's emotional. Right? They believe and they shudder. They're affected by the truth of God. They tremble at it. I wonder how many of us define our faith by the emotions we feel at any given time. It was a really good quiet time this morning. I really liked the Psalms. I don't like the imprecatory ones, but this one about comfort was great. Or maybe we don't feel the sermon, right? We define the way that we feel as the reality of our faith. The third point James makes about faith is that faith involves willful obedience. You show your faith not just by what you think or by what you feel, but by what you do. By what you do. Again, faith acts. Faith acts. If your faith consists merely of listening to the word, talking about the word, or feeling a certain way about the word, and that's it, then our faith, friends, is dead. Because faith acts on the word. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. There was a pastor, he was at his son's basketball game. And he struck up a conversation with a fellow parent. And as they started exchanging what they did for a living, uh, he said, oh, I'm a pastor. And the, this parent said, oh, me too. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a deeply committed Christian. The pastor's like, oh, that's great. When do you go to church? He's like, well, I, I don't go to church. He's like, oh, 
no, you're not active in a local church. And the man got indignant and said, no, but the dying thief wasn't active in a church, and yet he was still accepted by Jesus. The minister said, okay, no problem. So have you been baptized? And the man responded, no, the dying thief was not baptized, and he still made it to heaven. The minister then asked, if, well, do you take communion? Have you ever partaken of the Lord's Supper? And the man said, no. Again, the dying thief didn't either, and Christ still received him. Pastor scratched his head and said, the only difference between you and the dying thief is that he was dying in his belief, and you're dead in yours. Friends, our faith cannot be stagnant. It can't be. James is building a case for us that lived out faith matters, right? And he shows us first that faith acts, and then he moves next to the reality that faith sacrifices. Look at verse 20. Second, faith sacrifices. Verse 20 says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Don't you love this? Like, you're just like, man, he's giving us a group hug right now. Don't you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, here's what's important to understand. James is not contrasting mature faith with immature faith. He's not saying, what's the difference between lukewarm faith and dynamic faith? No, he's saying, what's the difference between genuine faith with a professed faith that actually doesn't exist? In other words, James is saying, this is not really faith. It's dead. It's nothing. He's putting dead faith against living faith. James introduces imaginary people who claim to have faith without deeds, and he's going to say over and over again that those people don't actually have faith. And this is where we have to look within. Every single person here, all of us have to ask this question, is my faith dead or is it alive? Is my faith only about intellectual assent? Is it only about this intellectual assent to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, or is my faith alive, penetrating and transforming every part of who I am? It's an internally important question. Is my faith counterfeit? Do I make a lot of promises, a lot of claims, and don't follow through? James would say that this kind of faith is counterfeit. It's kind of like the gator grip. You guys know what I'm talking about? Let me show you. Put it up on the screen for me if you would. The gator grip. You guys remember this? It's in every drunk drawer in America. Oh, there's two. You can go back one. We'll get to the bionic wrench in a second. So the gator grip uh, is this, this claim that, like, hey, it's going to replace every socket ever. It's going to work. It breaks real fast um, because it can't work. It can't actually mean it. The next one is even funnier. This is the bionic wrench. If you use this tool all the time, I'm really sorry. Um, every grandmother in America at one point put these in your stocking. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, it's just, we still have, like, we have two different sizes of the bionic wrench, and they don't ever get used because they don't work. They have all these claims that we're going to replace every wrench. We're going to replace every socket. It's going to be the most amazing tool. We make all these claims, and then the reality is it ends up in the junk drawer. It doesn't do anything. Now, James gives us two other illustrations on this important point. He's going to show us two biblical characters, and at first glance, they could not be any more different from each other. He gives us Abraham and Rahab. 
One is the father of a nation and the other is a prostitute. And he turns first to Abraham. We're pointed to the life of Abraham. And first, we're looking at something that takes place later in Abraham's life in Genesis 22. It's this passage where Abraham is challenged by God to offer up his only son, Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. And he was supposed to take him and sacrifice him. And it's important that we think about this story in context of what James is trying to help us understand. See, in Genesis 12, God makes great promises to Abraham, including the promise that through him, the entire world would be blessed. He promises that the Messiah would come through his line. But there's one big glaring problem, and that's that Abraham has no kids. He's an old man, and his wife Sarah and him were barren. But decades after the promise was made, when Abraham was 100 years old, God keeps that promise in a miraculous way. And Sarah gives birth to a son. God had done the impossible, but now God's asking Abraham to sacrifice his precious only son. It's this beautiful foreshadowing of the cross. It's a picture that points us to how God willingly sacrifices his son for us. So Abraham, by faith, journeys up the mountain to sacrifice his son. Now Genesis 15 makes it clear that Abraham is justified by his faith. And James even quotes that passage here. says he's reckoned as righteous. This happened decades before this moment with Isaac in Genesis 22. So Abraham is already justified in the eyes of God. But as he lives out his faith in God, he's demonstrating that his faith wasn't just a one-time thing. It wasn't just a, yes, God, it was a faith that was real. It was a faith that was genuine. It was a faith that was growing. Verse 22 points out that this faith was completed by his works. And what this means is that his faith had matured. Abraham is bearing the fruit of true faith. Works, friends, the things that we do are the fruit of salvation, not the means of salvation. The works of the believer that flow from the transformation of redemption, they're an evidence of our faith. Now, I want to be very clear because this is a challenging passage. A lot of people read this and scratch their heads. Luther called this the epistle of straw. He didn't like it. We have to do the work with it. See, these works that James are calling us to, they have no power to say, but they are a demonstration that our faith is true faith. It's not merely this intellectual ascent that even demons have. Because a faith that does nothing, right? A faith that sits in a pew, a faith that checks the box, but a faith that ignores the downcast, the poor, that doesn't care about their brothers, that doesn't dive deep and seek the Lord, it's not faith at all. Faith, friends, leads us to obedience, and obedience matures our faith. Here's what helps with Abraham's story. So you read this and you think to yourself, how could Abraham do this? How? how? Hebrews 11, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him, that's Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So how was Abraham able to display a living faith? Because of the object of his faith. Abraham trusted God so deeply, so 
passionately that he said, if I give you my son, I believe you promised he would be my heir. If he dies, you're bringing him back. I trust you emphatically, Lord. You see, friends, if the object, if the onus of your faith, if you're hearing this sermon and you're already in the gears in your brain thinking, I've got to do more. If I don't do more, then God won't be pleased with me. Then I won't make it to heaven. You're missing the whole point of what James is trying to say. The object of our faith, friends, is Jesus. Root yourself in Christ, not your good deeds. Tim Keller said it beautifully. Apparently, it's a Keller morning. He says this, if you're falling off a cliff... Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Salvation is not finally based on the strength of your faith, but on the object of your faith. Works are good when they are the fruit of faith. Think about how this plays out in some of the most basic of Christian actions. So coming to worship uh, with the church on Sunday morning. If you come to a worship gathering fueled by the flesh in order to put on a face before men or to earn favor before God, then this work of worship does not bring honor to the Lord. But if you're coming together with the saints as the fruit of faith, if you believe and love God, and if you trust that he knows what he is saying when he tells us not to forsake gathering together, then your actions do honor the Lord. When your faith drives you to corporate worship with God's people, leading you to to sing, to listen to the word of God, to fellowship with one another, then this is a part of bringing your faith to maturity. What about spending time in prayer and Bible study? Well, if you wake up early, if you're doing these things in the flesh because you feel like this is a religious routine that you must do in order to earn favor before God, then friends, it's not a good work. But if you believe your supreme delight is found in God, and you want to know him, to hear from him, and to express the longing of your heart to him, then a quiet time is a great work. What about caring for the poor? The example that James uses. Well, if you do this in the flesh because you feel like you have to in order to earn favor before God, then caring for the poor will not bring honor to the Lord. But if you Believe God when he says that this is important to him and that his people are to spend themselves on behalf of the poor, then you will care radically for the poor and your faith will be made complete in what you do. So speaking of Luther, Martin Luther actually says this about faith, and I think it's beautiful. He says, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. Now we read verse 24 and a lot of us scratch our heads and have a hard time, right? Verse 24 says this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What do we do with that? Well, if we read in a vacuum and we just take one verse at a time and throw it out there, we're not going to understand it, right? Because that's a strange sentence in light of, well, the rest of the Bible, right? So let's jump over to another well-known book uh, of the Bible, Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Huh. What's happening here? 
Do Paul and James disagree? Is this a contradiction? Should we throw out the whole thing? That's what some people would say. It's helpful to keep the entire context of chapter 2 in mind. In a sense, James 2, verse 24, is summarizing the whole book of James. Likewise, in a sense, Romans 3.28 is summarizing the whole book of Romans. So what do we do? How do we understand this? We have no reason to shrink back from either James or Paul because they're not contradicting each other. Now, there's so many helpful takes on this, but for the sake of time, for the sake of clarity, here's a really helpful summarized point. So for you theology nerds, you're going to love this. For the rest of you, I'm really sorry. I'll try and translate it. This is from uh, New Testament scholar Grant Osborne. This is what he says. He says, the primary, there's some Greek up there too, so we're just doing it this morning. The primary way in which Paul uses the word justify emphasizes the sense of being declared righteous by God through faith on the basis of Jesus' atoning work, what we just read in Romans 3. Whereas the primary way that James uses the word justified here in James 2 seems to emphasize the way in which works demonstrate that someone has been justified as evidenced by the good works that that person does. Okay, Billy, what are you saying? If you jump back up to verse 14, it makes the whole thing make sense. And yeah, it's on the screen, so you got to look at your phone or your physical Bible. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And here's the key sentence. Can that faith save him? Can this kind of faith, meaning a dead faith, save him? No, it can't. If you're trusting on mental assent alone, that will not save you. Each writer, both Paul and James, is writing about the exact same gospel, but they're writing from a different vantage point, and they're addressing different problems in the churches to whom they're writing. I don't picture James and Paul throwing rocks at each other, standing toe-to-toe. No, on the contrary, they're standing back-to-back with each other, fighting very different enemies, and together defending a unified understanding of the gospel. Paul is fighting against the false idea that we can earn our salvation with our works. An idea that James would affirm in this book as he shows us that we are lawbreakers in need of grace. I mean, he just said this earlier in chapter 2, that none of us can keep the law. But James is, on the other hand, fighting against an easy believism that had reduced salvation to intellectual belief. So the question is, which battle are we fighting today? And the answer, friends, is both. We fight both legalism and licentiousness. Either the idea that we can somehow measure up to the law by our doing, which, by the way, would nullify the cross. Like, let's take that theology full on. If you think that you can earn your salvation by your doing, then why, oh, why did Jesus die for you? this idea that we can somehow measure up to the law by our doing and work our way to God or that we're saved by grace through faith and now we can just not really worry about doing anything because Jesus did it all. Coram Deo, both are wrong. Both ideas are deeply wrong. Many followers of Christ, whether they admit it or not, think I can do enough to make God love me. As a pastor, I want to fight against that idea with everything in me. At the same time, there are many others that believe that we're saved by grace through faith, and that means that works are irrelevant to God. Obedience is unimportant. And I also want to fight against that idea with everything in me. A man who claims to have faith without works is like a man who puts all of his effort into building the foundation of a house. 
and never builds anything on it. But a man who displays great works but claims no faith is like a man who builds a house on sand without any foundation. This passage, it gives us a picture of a glorious gospel that's received by faith. But this faith, again, it's more than just intellectual belief. It's a faith that results in radical obedience to the commands of Christ. Christ, friends, is the basis of our justification. Faith is the means of our justification. And works are the evidence of our justification. Abraham here is called a friend of God. That's the natural overflow of knowing God as Father. It's to enjoy Him as a friend. That kind of relationship, that kind of faith results in radical obedience. When your faith in God as Father and as friend is more than your fear of failure, then you do not need to be afraid to obey Him. You do not need to fear His commands even when he says to do things that make no sense to us or to the world around us, even when he calls us to take steps that risk everything, we can obey. Why? Because we trust him wholeheartedly. The key, friends, to all of this is, is when we look at Abraham, is to understand what's the onus of Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God so emphatically, so deeply, he would put his son on the line. I don't know if you guys have seen my little boy, I love him to death. I mean, he falls and hits his nose, and I'm like, ah! Like, I, everything in me is just sick and repulsed. So reading this, I think to myself, what radical faith. How did he do it? And if your solution in your mind is thinking, well, Abraham must be better than me. Again, no. Abraham was looking to someone who is better than him. Do you trust the Lord? Are you looking to Christ? Do you yearn for him? That's the question. So we've seen faith acts, faith sacrifices, and finally, let's look at verse 25 and 26 to see that faith risks, faith risks. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In Abraham, we see that faith lived out. It's a faith that sacrifices. But now James shifts the focus to Rahab. So who's Rahab? We find her story in Joshua 2 and 6. We come to her story as the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land after years of wandering in the wilderness. But in between the people of God and the promised land stood the wall of Jericho. And it was in that wall of Jericho that Rahab lived. And she was a prostitute. And it's likely that she had not chosen that profession on her own. And as a prostitute, her home was in the wall of Jericho. And she ran an inn of sorts where she could entertain travelers and customers. And this is exactly where we find her when Israel sends in two spies to survey the land. They come to her home. They needed to be hidden from the king. And this unlikely woman would exercise both great courage and faith in being the one to hide them. We read this in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. This is Rahab speaking about the people of Israel. She says, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a big deal for Rahab to say. We see her pronounce this great profession of faith in the God of Israel. And then we see her act 
on that faith by risking everything to hide these men. If the king had discovered that these Jewish spies were in Rahab's home, then she and her family would have been executed immediately. I mean, this was treason. Rahab's life is literally on the line. And like James, Hebrews points to Rahab as a hero of faith. But is she a hero of faith because of her rituals? Because of her piety and her religious activity? No, she's a hero of faith because she put her life and everything dear to her on the line for the Lord, trusting in him without hesitation, qualification, or reservation. She risked it all going against everything in the culture around her. She risked it all so that the people of God could take Jericho for the glory of God. And according to James, she's considered righteous for what she does. So let me ask you this, Cormdeo. Are you willing to take risks in your life? Are you willing to take risks in obedience to the word of God because you revere the sovereign God who has saved you by his scandalous grace? Thousands of years after, Ra- after Abraham took his son to the mountain to sacrifice him, and thousands of years after Rahab risked her life, are we today willing to risk it? Will we go against the grain of the culture around us, even the Christian subculture that surrounds us? Are we willing to take some risks for the glory of God's name? Just a few chapters later, after she agrees to harbor spies, the wall of Jericho comes tumbling down. But one part of the wall was left standing. It was the home of Rahab. From prostitute to child of God. And Rahab's greatest honor is not being named alongside Abraham here in James. It's not even being listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. No, there's something far greater that was bestowed on this unlikely woman. In Matthew chapter 1, we find her name tucked amid the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This unlikely woman would be named in the lineage of Jesus. She was the great, great grandmother of David and part of the family tree of Jesus. Friends, this is scandalous grace. It's a grace that takes an outcast and makes her a daughter. Our faith, friends, is evidenced by our works. You see, the beautiful truth of the gospel is that Jesus looks at each of us and doesn't say, measure up to some standard. He says, I'll meet the standard, and I'll make you a child. Jesus willingly dies in our place for our sins at the cross of Calvary, extending grace upon grace. And he offers to us living faith. Not some pious culture changing, like, you know, do your right things, fit in your little social club, and and check the box every day, but a, a living faith, a transforming life that's abundant and free It was true for Abraham as he walked up the mountain willing to sacrifice his son. And it was true for Rahab as she risked everything in order to protect the spies from danger. The scandalous grace of God is so great that it not only has the power to save, but it also has the power to produce in us fruit. This isn't about what we bring to the table. Because what we bring is nothing but filthy rags. Instead, it's about the work of the Spirit that transforms us little by little into the image of our Savior. I think this is why James chooses two people who are very different as our example, because growing in godliness and bearing fruit, it's not just for the spiritual elite, it's for every child of God. 
And it may look different for each of us. It is definitely going to take time. But through the power of the Spirit, all believers will grow little by little in godliness. Now this passage, it requires some pretty stern self-examination for all of us. We need to reflect on what we are doing and how or if that relates to what we say and think about ourselves. Now some of us, naturally we have very tender consciences. Anytime a challenge like this comes along, we instantly think about all of my inconsistencies, all of my failures. Our failures, they're never too far from our minds. And so we might easily find ourselves questioning whether we're really a Christian or not. Now listen, it's a, it's a blessing from the Lord to have a tender conscience, but it can be a dangerous thing in that we so consider our deficiencies that we fail to notice the ways in which we do actually, even if it's imperfect, express our faith and our actions. We only see the flaws and we easily miss what might be genuine fruit. Now others of us may have the opposite reaction. We immediately assume, I'm fine. This isn't for me. We run a cursory self-diagnostic. We think of a handful of good Christian deeds. And we check the James 2 box and we move on. But just as the tender conscience might overlook genuine good, so too the naturally confident might overlook some genuine problems. We see the good deeds and we miss the many sinful attitudes bubbling away under the surface. In both cases, our self-assessment is superficial and we need to take the time and we need to ask for God's help. We need to pray with David. David says this in Psalm 19, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. We need God to show us where we are truly at, especially, especially if we know we are prone to have a very slanted view of ourselves, which newsflash, most of us do. One of the means that God uses, friends, is each other. The people who know us well and who will be honest with us. And we then need to be willing to hear their answers, whether it confirms or corrects what we might think of ourselves. I mean, there may be some who read this part of James and rightly conclude, I don't think I'm actually a Christian. I mean, that's part of James' aim, after all. It's to expose false faith. This might sound like a, pretty negative downer thing for me to say, but it's enormously important. Because as we've seen, such counterfeit faith doesn't do any good for us. It doesn't save. We need to dump false faith if we're to enjoy true faith. And the best way to respond is to pray to God about it, to confess the false faith, and ask Him for true faith or living faith. Let me, quote, let me close here with a quote from Ray Orland. It's really good. He says this. He says, Too often, what passes for Christianity today is a life legislated by the good example of Jesus and frightened by the threat of divine punishment. But the person who is afraid of sinning because of hellfire isn't really afraid of sinning. He's only afraid of burning. He has no stimulus for action except fear and pride. But true faith is swallowed up with such a sense of the glory of Christ that the heart transcends choice in the pleasure of surrender. This is Jesus' little brother. 
And he sees people who say that they're following him. James has seen scores of his friends die at the hands of those who would do harm to the church. He knows what Jesus has done. And he knows how Jesus transforms. And the question for us, for us has to be, is my life transformed? Like, I, not have I signed a card? Did I get baptized once when I was 12? But is my life different because of Jesus? And if it is not, then we must be willing to say, Lord, transform me and save me. May we never stand behind a dead faith and claim it as genuine. Yes, it is Christ alone that saves us, but he saves us to new life, not dead faith. Four questions for us to consider. First, is my faith more than just mental assent? What does my treatment of those in need reveal about my faith? Is my faith more than just mental assent? What does my treatment of those in need reveal about my faith? Second, what works or spiritual disciplines am I tempted to rely on for a right standing with God? What works or spiritual disciplines am I tempted to rely on for a right standing with God? Third, what might risking it all look like in my life right now? And then fourth, do I work out of duty or delight? How will looking to the gospel cause me to delight to do the works of God? We'll throw up all four on the screen for you guys. Let's close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the good news of the gospel. We desperately need it. But Lord, we see that the good news of the gospel is that you don't call us to stay as we are, but to grow, Lord, in Christ-likeness, to be conformed to the image of your Son. So Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have either sidestepped, right? James is abundantly clear that we fall into sin and that we have lesser idols and that we need to confess our sins and be healed. And so Lord, if that's some of us this morning, would we confess those areas where we have either relied on our own sufficiency or looked away from being obedient? Will we trust in you? But Lord, I pray for those this morning who perhaps are struggling um, with the reality that they may not actually truly believe. Lord, would you meet them now? Would you comfort them? God, would you save sinners? Would you show them that you call us to an abundant life? Thank you, Lord, for the hope of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.